Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, we always take a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are spiritually prepared for the study of God's word. Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins in full at the cross. At the the instant that we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that death is applied to us in a way that is called justification. And that doctrine means that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us and God declares us to be just before him. And as a result of that, we are positionally cleansed and positionally forgiven of all sin. But in our day-to-day walk, as we continue to live in this earth, still having a sin nature that uh, produces sins, as the writer of Hebrews says, that so easily beset us, and each time we sin, that sin causes a breach in our ongoing fellowship with God, just as a disobedient child causes a fracture in his relationship with his parents, though he doesn't end the relationship. And so when we sin, it is necessary to have a recovery from that sin. And so Scripture says that that is through confession of sin. Each believer uh, privately confesses, admits, acknowledges his sin to God. That's what the word means. It doesn't mean to repent. Confession means to admit. It doesn't mean to have remorse. You might, but that is not what the word confess means. Confess doesn't mean to feel sorry for your sin. You may, but that's not what the word confess means. The word confess simply means to admit or acknowledge wrongdoing. And so when we admit to God that we have sinned and we uh, remember certain sins and admit those sins to him, God, in the expansiveness of his grace, forgives us from all other sins, not just the ones we admit to him, but also the ones we've forgotten, the ones that we didn't know were sins, the the ones that we're not willing to admit yet even to ourselves may indeed be sins. Scripture says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that at the instant we admit our sins to him, we are forgiven experientially, 
because of the completed work of Christ on the cross that has already paid for those sins. We're not paying for them again through sorrow or sadness or remorse or any other human work. And so when we admit those sins, we are completely forgiven. That ongoing sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit, whether we call it filling of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, walking in the truth, resumes so that we can advance and grow in the spiritual life. But when we have unconfessed sin in the life, then spiritual growth is hindered, retarded, and may, in fact, reverse itself simply because of the control of the sin nature. We either walk by the Spirit or we walk by the sin nature. And the way to recover from walking by the sin nature is through confession of sin. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship with God, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as the choir has sung already, you are a God who has demonstrated his great power and his tremendous uh, attributes through your creation. As we observe your creation, we see your might and your power and the fact that you are the one who created all things, the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And Father, as the creator God, you are the authority, the ultimate authority in the universe And it is to you that we are accountable. And, Father, it is a part of your sovereign authority that you have revealed yourself to us so that we might know how to live in a way that is pleasing to you. Scriptures tell us that the basic problem that mankind has is that of sin because of the disobedience of Adam in the garden. The Scriptures also tell us that Jesus Christ paid that price for us and that by believing in him we have eternal life. But just as we have eternal life, just as a newborn baby grows, so we must grow, and we grow through the Scriptures. For Scripture says, as a newborn babe desires the sincere, sincere milk of the Word, so sincere milk, so we should desire the sincere milk of the Word that we might, might grow thereby. So, Father, now as we study your Word, may we be reminded that of the importance that you place upon the study of your Word, and that it is the central part of our life to understand who you are, who we are, what you have provided for us in salvation and in our spiritual life, and so that we may learn how to think as you have revealed yourself, think according to the revelation of Scripture, think consistent with the reality as you have created it. And as we do so, we have to submit our thinking to the authority of your word and to let your word change and transform us from the inside out. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, we've been studying the six seal judgments, the introductory phase to the judgment process, the judgment cycles that occur in the book of Revelation. As we are now coming to the fifth and sixth seal judgments, one of the things that we will note is the hostility that is developing among a class of people on the earth that are referred to many times in the book of Revelation as the earth dwellers. This is not a term for simply those who are living on the earth, but it is a term for those who have rejected God and who are entrenched in their hostility towards God. And it is these earth dwellers who never respond to the gospel 
who never turn to God and who who shake their fist at God more and more as the judgments increase in intensity. As the choir sang just a few minutes ago the hymn, I Sing the Mighty Power of God That Made the Mountains Rise, it reminds us of just a glimpse of this kind of hostility that we see today. For what this hymn drives us to think about is the creative power of God that is evidenced in the heavens and the earth. The psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. It is a nonverbal witness, but no human being can look at the stars in the sky, can look at the trees or the mountains or the oceans, can come to understand the complexities of biology, botany, astronomy, or any of the other sciences without hearing the voice of God. For what the scriptures tell us is that in, as we've seen in our studies in Romans 1, uh, 19 and following, that in the creation there is ample testimony to the power, the invisible power and attributes of God so that man is without excuse. But in response to that, man seeks to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. We see examples of that all the time in our culture around us, not the least of which is the reaction to the film uh, that Ben Stein did this last year on ex- uh, uh, Expelled, uh, No Intelligence Allowed. The very mention of the possibility of an intelligent designer or creator is such a threat to those who are suppressing that truth. See, it's so hard for them. It's like trying to push a jack-in-the-box down inside the box, and the the jack-in-the-box is actually too big to go inside, and the more they try to stuff it in, the angrier they get because it just keeps wanting to pop out. It just isn't under their control. And the unbelievers in this world who are antagonistic to God and who are truth suppressors, who were the forerunners of those earth dwellers that Revelation talks about, those who are in opposition to God and those who uh, trust in him, those who stand for his word, just becomes increasingly hostile, increasingly aggravated every time any little thing comes along that just pricks that conscience. As the writer of Ecclesiastes says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, there is something within the heart of every man. God has placed eternity in the heart of every human being so that there is none who is not aware that God exists. They may dispute that. They may protest. They may write volumes and volumes to try to uh, justify their uh, disbelief in God and their atheism. But the reality is that there is something inside of them that responds every time something is said about God, and it just drives them to the ends of anger and arrogance. And we'll see that as we get into uh, especially the sixth seal judgment. Okay, it's time for a little review in uh, Revelation for those who... Uh, maybe visiting today, those who haven't seen this in a while. 
Revelation is one of those books that a lot of people have difficulty coming to understand, but it's really a simple book as we've seen. It has three basic divisions as laid out in Revelation 1.19. The first part is the things which you, that is John, has already seen when it, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him in a vision when he was in, uh, exiled by the Roman uh, emperor Domitian on the Isle of Patmos. And then the Lord Jesus Christ says that you will uh, write down the things which are present tense related to the present church age. And that's Revelation chapter 2 and 3 focusing on those seven letters to the seven churches indicating the trends both positive and negative that would characterize the church age, challenging these congregations to change in the areas where they need to change. The focal point of those seven letters is judgment, that there is a coming judgment for believers, not a judgment to determine their future destiny, but a judgment to determine their future role and responsibilities in the coming kingdom when Jesus Christ returns to the earth to establish his 1,000-year reign on the earth. For Revelation 1 clearly affirms that we will return with him to rule as kings and priests in that kingdom. So the second division in the book, the short division of chapters 2 and 3, again speaks of judgment, that there will be an evaluation coming. And so the church-age believers are to live today in light of that future judgment. And then Revelation chapter 4 through 22 deals with the things which will take place after these things, future events. And all of these things lead to various judgments that are coming. There is the judgment itself of the seven-year tribulation period that's covered from between chapters 4 and chapter 19. There is a judgment at the end of that time that we're told about from the Gospels, the uh, sheep and goat judgment, the separation of believers from unbelievers. There is a judgment on uh, Satan who is sent to uh, in chains into the abyss. There is a judgment on the false prophet and the Antichrist. And then there's the establishment of Jesus Christ's 1,000-year kingdom, at the end of which there's another judgment, the great white throne judgment, which is a judgment of all unbelievers. So Revelation revolves around this idea of judgment because Revelation is written to tell us that there is a judgment coming, that even though we live in a time when there may be uh, incredible evil, there may be wars and famines and all of these things that have taken place throughout history where men question the justice of God, how can God let these things happen? God is postponing judgment. And what Revelation tells us is that evil is not going to ultimately get away with it, that one day there is judgment coming. And I have mentioned that uh, sermon. I just like the title by R.G. Lee, one of two or three great sermons that are known in the English language, Payday Someday. It just drives the point home. There is a time when God will ultimately deal with all of the injustice, all of the evil that has taken place in history, and that will be restricted and confined and sent to the lake of fire. In the structure of the book of Revelation, we see that 
There is the opening chapter which presents the glorified risen Christ appearing to the Apostle John as a priest judge. He is, the way he is dressed, the way he is presented, what he says is a focal point on the fact that he is a priest judge. He is the, our high priest and he is going to return as as the judge, as Jesus said in John 5, all judgment has been given to him by the Father. Chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches of the church age, indicating the cycles or trends of history, and then the future period divided into three sections, the tribulation period, chapters 4 through 19, the millennial period, chapter 20, and the eternal state in chapters 21 and 22. Now, we are in the section dealing with the tribulation, Revelation chapter 4 through 19, and this wraps around three series of judgments as we see in this chart. There are the first uh, judgments called seal judgments. This is because the Lord Jesus Christ comes and appears before the throne of God in Revelation chapter 5, and the Father is presented as the one on the throne, and in his hand there is a scroll. And this scroll is sealed with seven seals. And this scroll is actually a title deed to the planet. It is, as it were, the warrant that God the Father is given to God the Son to take dominion, finally, over the planet. In Daniel chapter 7, there is a uh, prophecy given, a vision given, wherein the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, sends the Son of Man to conquer the kingdoms of man on, on the planet, and the Son of Man will then set up his kingdom as a unique kingdom that overturns the kingdoms of man. And we have the history there that we've gone through in the past in Daniel chapter 7. But what is presented in Daniel 7 as the Son of Man coming to establish his kingdom is given uh, greater depth and understanding in Revelation 5 as we see that how that takes place is that the Son of Man, who we now see and understand to be the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the earth, the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the earth, it is the Lamb of God who alone is worthy to come forward and take that scroll from the hand of God. And that scroll is a title deed, but for the Son of Man to come and take dominion over the planet to fulfill the role of man as man in relation to Genesis 1.26, that man was created to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and the beasts of the field, that man as man in the image and likeness of God is designed to be the ruler of, planet, uh, of the planet and to rule even over the angels, as Psalm 8 says, though we were created a little lower than the angels, we are designed to ultimately rule over the angels in order to establish his dominion and his rule over the planet. There must be judgment of those that have been in opposition to God. And so these seven seals that must be broken in order to open that title deed, each seal represents another Judgment. Each judgment following upon the other. And you have the first seven seal judgments, but the seventh seal judgment, back up, seventh seal judgment 
is open and it reveals another series of judgments called trumpet judgments. And these get progressively worse. They're parallels. They, they take things that have happened already and then they expand them even more. And the seven trumpet judgments occur. And these all occur, I believe, in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. And then we have the final stage series of judgments, the bowl judgments. The seventh trumpet judgment contains seven bowl judgments. And so these seven bowl judgments are played out in the last three and a half years, culminating in the grand battle that takes place in the Middle East. The staging ground for this battle is the plains of Esdralon, which lie at the base of a place called Har Megiddo in the Greek, meaning the mountain of Megiddo, for the ancient tell of Megiddo sits there overlooking that valley. And they've so far uncovered about 26 levels of civilization at Megiddo, but it is in that that grand uh, valley that we have the staging area where they bring the troops and the equipment and everything necessary as this final military campaign begins because there's not one battle. Armageddon is not one battle. It is a campaign, and there's a series of battles that culminate in the Lord Jesus Christ returning at the head of the armies of the remnant of Israel, accompanied by church-age believers as his bride to defeat and destroy the Antichrist, the false prophet, and his kingdom. And this is the basically a summary of what happens in the book of Revelation. So we are looking at this first series of judgments, the sealed judgments. We will not be here. The church is raptured in an instant, taken to heaven, before the tribulation begins. There is a transition period of some unknown length, and during the first 21 months of the tribulation, after the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel, which brings peace to Israel and the Middle East, but not, if you study the passages, it's not talking about worldwide peace, it's just peace in relationship to Israel. And the first four judgments are represented by these four horses. The white horse brings conquest. The second horse brings open warfare. The third horse, the black horse, brings famine. And then the fourth horse, which we studied last time, is death. And Hades follows after. This is the ashen-colored horse. And then each of these... And along with the along with death, there's death from famine, there's death from pestilence, these things come. There's also death from wild beasts. And then the fifth seal relates to the martyrdom of believers during the tribulation period, and then the wrath of the Lamb in the sixth seal. So let's we'll run through a couple of things here uh, by way of review. And then the seventh trumpet is opened, and that will reveal I mean the seventh seal is opened and that reveals the seven trumpet judgments. The passage begins with John seeing the Lamb opening the first of the seven seals, and he hears one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come and see, and he sees the first horse, a white horse, the one who sits on it has a bow, no arrows, it's more of a peaceful conquest, not violent, A crown, the victor's crown, is given to him, and he goes forth conquering and to conquer. We have studied this. It's a personification of the Antichrist's conquest. 
But before long, those nonviolent conquests done through diplomatic channels erupt into violence. And so the second horseman, the rider on the red horse comes, and this is when peace is taken from the earth, not from Israel, but from the earth. This deals with the worldwide uh, warfare that takes place, and people will kill one another with a great sword. Here the Greek word is makarios, indicating the short uh, sword that the Roman soldiers carried. Uh, there is great bloodshed and death at this time, but this is not the only thing that brings death. Now, understanding this takes us back to Old Testament passages, as I've pointed out in the past. For example, in Jeremiah 25, 15 to 17, we see this same imagery. Thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So we see that the wrath that occurs here, even though it's denominated as the wrath of the Lamb at the end of the chapter, God the Father is instigating this. The reason I point that out is there is one fellow who came out with a theory about 20 years ago that the... Uh, it's only the, the tribulation really is only the last quarter of the seven year period when the wrath of God is poured out. And so the rapture doesn't occur until sort of the three quarter period. It's called the pre-wrath rapture, uh, view. And yet from, we see from Jeremiah 25, the whole of the period is the outpouring of the wrath of God. God utilizes sort of natural second, natural causes within human history to bring about these initial judgments. So they will drink and stagger, go mad because of the sword that I will send among them, the Lord says. And then Jeremiah says, I took the cup from the Lord's hands and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. Uh, Revelation 6, verses 5 and 6, describes the third seal judgment using the imagery of a pair of scales weighing out the wheat and the barley. It takes... Uh, uh, a day's wage to buy a quart of wheat or uh, three days' wages to buy a quart of barley. So, in, uh, excuse me, a day's wage to buy a quart of wheat, which would be basically enough for a family or for an individual to live on for a day. Uh, a day's wage to buy a quart of barley, which would be enough for a family to live on uh, for a day. It's not quite as uh, nourishing as the wheat. But no harm to oil, no harm to wine. And as I pointed out, these are more... Um, uh, luxurious uh, commodities and available to the wealthy. And this is typically what we see happen when you see governments interfere in economics is that it always hurts the poor. It always hurts those who uh, do without. That the more governments interfere and try to control economics and control economies and solve problems that are way beyond their Understand. Just think about this. To control all the data related to, to an economy, to a recession, to a depression, to an advance, you have to be omniscient. No government's omniscient. No president is omniscient. No presidential candidate is omniscient. So once they start messing with these things on the basis of a finite amount of knowledge in relationship to all the causes and relations within economic trends, all they can do is interfere and make things worse. And that's what happens here, so that the poor become poorer. Uh, 
And the, the, there is great abundance, but it's only available to those who are wealthy. If you look around the world and if you're a student of history, what you discover is the reason that you have great famines in places around the world is usually not related to the uh, potential productivity of those lands, but it's related to the governments that restrict trade. Uh, the more Marxist and socialist regimes have become in Africa, the more you have uh, an increase in the poverty classes and the more there's an increase of, of famine. So there's nothing worse than an arrogant government that seeks to control everything, and it reaches its apex during the time of the Antichrist. The fourth seal judgment is pictured as death and Hades following after. We studied those terms last time. A quarter of the earth's population, according to st today's statistics, somewhere between one and a half to two billion people will be killed during this period of time, 20, approximately 20 uh, to 25 months. And it's a result of additional famine, not the famine of, of the seal judgment, not just the warfare of the second judgment, but this gets enhanced even more. And then, as I pointed out last time in Revelation 6, verse 8, at the end where uh, there's the addition of wild beasts. Now, when I talked about this last time, I pointed out that, that with the rise of the uh, arrogant uh, PETA movements, the animal lovers, there's nothing wrong with loving animals. I, I love animals, and I just can't watch. I still can't watch Lassie, Okay. Uh, when I was a kid, I would 15 minutes into the show, as the tension mounted, I would leave the room. I still leave the room. Nothing's changed. I can't stand it when an animal is mistreated or abused. But we have to understand that animals are animals and pets are animals, and that man, when man begins to uh, manipulate the environment, there can be unintended consequences. And one of these unintended consequences has to do with what the Bible teaches about wild animals. I pointed out last time that part of God's promise to Israel in terms of blessing them when they were obedient was that God would remove these wild predatory animals from the land and that when they were disobedient, God would bring them back. And so in the wisdom of modern man, uh, we think that all these predatory animals should be able to live in their natural habitat, which is heavily encroached upon by man. And we, of course, modern man in his liberalism thinks that, that uh, man is really the enemy, not the animal. So we're reintroducing all of these predators back into habitats where there are people living. You have bears and you have... Uh, wolves and all of these other animals coming back in and presenting real problems, and they're protected by the federal government, so you can't do anything with them. And I can tell a lot of stories there, but I'm not uh, because we don't have time. But a lot of people sent me stories. I got a lot of email last Sunday and Monday related to this, but one of the most interesting was that Bruce came up with some statistics that there's about 1,800 registered Tigers in Texas. I'm not talking about New Mexico, Arizona, California, Utah, Nevada, Montana, Idaho, any of these other places that have enormous numbers of wild animal refuges. I'm just talking about the state of Texas, and that's more, there are more registered tigers in the state of Texas than living wild tigers in India. 
and they suspect that there are another five to 10,000 unregistered tigers. I'm not talking about lions or any of the other wild predatory beasts that are in these wildlife refuges, re- refugees, but there's uh, a refuges. There's uh, between five and 10,000 unregistered tigers in the state of Texas. So when the tribulation occurs and their animal, their human tenders are gone, and these animals get released, well, they'll do what they do naturally. So that just sort of gives you an idea of how we're setting things up uh, for the future. Old Testament passages give us the same background, same scenario for these future events. Ezekiel 5, 15 to 17 talks about famine. Uh, also, God says, if you look about three-fourths of the way down, I will send upon you famine and evil beasts, and they shall bereave thee, and pestilence and blood shall pass through thee, and I will bring the sword upon thee. I, Yahweh, have spoken it. So what we see here is that God uses these four things and promises and predicts that this will be uh, the key elements within the judgment at the end times. Also in Ezekiel 6, 11 to 12, you have the mention of the sword, famine, and pestilence. So this brings us to the fifth seal judgment. The fifth seal judgment mentioned in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And so you should turn in your Bibles to that particular passage. And we read there that when he opened the fifth seal, I, that is John, saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, and your English will translate it for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. But the English word for has as one of its meanings cause. And yet we lose that with the word for. It's sort of a uh, a rather anemic uh, translation. And it's better to translate it because for the reason, the cause of their persecution is that they stand for the word of God, they believe in the word of God, and they continue to be a testimony to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So with the fifth seal, the focus is on martyrdom, the souls of those who had been slain. These are tribulation saints, not church-age believers, because we were raptured. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 The Lord Jesus Christ will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. When the Lord returns at the end of the church age in the clouds, all living and dead church age believers are taken to be with him. And this is when the judgment seat of Christ takes place. And there's a transition period on the earth and the tribulation period begins But after the rapture, there will be many people that we know, Jews and Gentiles alike, who will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because of the witness that we had during our time here. They resisted it, but they'll come over, knock on the door, we'll be gone, and they will uh, remember what we told them. And so there will be millions of people who trust in Christ during the tribulation period. Uh, when I emphasize that the tribulation period is a time of judgment, there's many people who get the impression that that means that there's no grace of God in that period, but there is an incredible uh, testimony of the grace of God during the tribulation period. Millions upon millions of people 
are going to be saved during the tribulation period because the hopelessness is so great and the horrors are so incredible and so fantastic that people realize their only hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So they will be martyred because of their faith, and there will be millions who will be uh, slaughtered, literally, we'll see in the Greek. They're not just killed. They're not just executed. They are slaughtered. They are slaughtered like the Jews were slaughtered in a ravine called Babi Yar to the north of Kiev in Ukraine. They will be slaughtered like Jews were slaughtered in numerous other unnamed ravines and gullies throughout uh, Eastern Europe as the uh, armies of the Third Reich advanced to the east with their Einsatzgruppen in front of them. These were teams of SS, Totenkopf, Deathhead, SS men whose job and mission was to uh, identify the Jews, to round them up, to take uh, all their valuables from them, and then to uh, kill them, to uh, commit mass murder. And they would take them outside of these villages, line them up in a, in a, um, a ravine or valley, or dig a, they would have them dig a hole, and then they would put 50, 100, 200, or more, or thousands more into these ravines, and then they would just machine gun them. This last year when I was in, uh, I think it was a year ago when Steve was over, and we went through the uh, war museum in Kiev, which is a very interesting museum. And we, um, uh, it's the first time I actually had a Russian speaker with me. One of uh, the ladies who works with Jim Myers came with us, and so she could translate things. I've been through this with English speakers before, and we couldn't read the signs or really pay attention to some of the details. So this was the first time I'd had a translator with me. And in each of these rooms you go through as you progress through the war chronologically, uh, there are television monitors in, in the rooms. And so we asked the docents who were in the rooms, the little old babushkas who were sitting in there, if they would turn on the films. And what we see in our anesthetized, filtered uh, videos of World War II or of the Holocaust, you see these one or two second clips that are taken from some of these files, whereas there they would show a 45-second unedited unbroken clip where the Russian where the Germans had taken films of what they did to the to the Jews in the various uh, towns and uh, cities that they went and there was about a 45 second to minute long clip of them machine gunning the 20 or 30,000 that they killed at Babi Yar and, I mean it just it, it's the most appalling thing you've ever seen. But there were only six and a half million Jews killed in the Holocaust. We think of those places, Auschwitz, Dachau, Treblinka, the various various camps. This is nothing compared to what will happen to those who are Christians during the tribulation period. They will be slaughtered, the text says. They will be taken out and murdered en masse by the uh, troops of the Antichrist. And this is consistent with the what is 
prophesied by our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 24. So I pointed out before there are various parallels between the Olivet Discourse of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is given in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, the three right-hand columns, and Revelation chapter 6 and the seal judgments. And so we are down at the level I've outlined in the blue box, the persecutions and martyrdom in uh, Revelation 6, 9 through 11 are parallel in Matthew 24, verse 9. So we see again the uh, progression and parallel between Matthew 24 and Revelation 6. Matthew 24, 9, Jesus said, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. This he had identified in in verse 8 as the beginning of the birth pangs. It's just the beginning of the time of sorrows in the tribulation period, that first three and a half years. They will deliver you to tribulation, will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. There will be many who are so-called Christians who suddenly will no longer be biblical Christians as they turn against those who are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and who are truly Bible believers. And we all know that within any congregation or within much of so-called overt Christendom, there are only a few that are actual believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are depicted in... Revelation 6, 9, uh, as martyrs, and the Lamb breaks the fifth seal, and what John sees is a heavenly vision of the altar in heaven, and under the altar he sees the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Now, the first thing we need to talk about is this altar, what altar is this? And we know that in the he- heavens, in the throne of God, there is a pattern, the original archetype of the temple. And there is an altar there, there, and it appears to be two altars. There are some who think this is the altar of incense because the focal point here is of, of the, the prayer that they are going to pray in, the, uh, in verses 10 and 11. But usually when you have the altar of of incense mentioned, it's the golden altar as it is in subsequent passages in in, uh, the book of Revelation. And so it's most likely that the uh, altar here is that which is comparable to the uh, brazen altar in the temple or, I mean, in the tabernacle or in the temple, that this... uh, Revelation, subsequent passages such as Revelation 8, 3, uh, 9, 13, 14, 18, this seems to be the comparable to the altar of incense. But why would it be the brazen altar? This was the place of sacrifice. And when a sacrifice was made, as we've studied on Thursday nights in our Hebrew series, is that the priest would take the, the blood from the sacrifice and would splatter it on the base of the altar. 
and in some cases would pour out the blood. Now remember, the blood is going to be a gallon, gallon and a half of blood from each sacrifice, and this would then be poured out at the base. So it's at underneath the altar is a uh, place that is uh, that focuses on the blood that has been shed by those who have been sacrificed or offered. Here the picture is not of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, but on these martyrs whose lives have been sacrificed because of their dedication and devotion to the Word of God and to the Gospel. So these are not sacrifices of atonement, but sacrifices of devotion. And the picture of these souls is that they are immediately in the presence of God, which is consistent with the rest of Scripture, that at the moment of physical death, your soul is transported to heaven by the angels, and you are instantly uh, face-to-face with the Lord in heaven in a, a immaterial interim body until the resurrection occurs. There are two reasons that they are martyred. The first is because of the, test, the Word of God, and the second, the testimony that they had maintained. So first of all, they believe the Bible is the Word of God, and it is the primary focus of their life, and second, because of their testimony. The testimony comes from the Greek word marturia. The noun is marturos, which is where we get the word, the English word martyr, because those who maintained their testimony, their uh, those who were witnesses, marturos, in the uh, early church, often gave their lives during the times of Roman persecution. So that's how we get our term Martyr. So because of their main, their testimony, which they had maintained, and the verb here that's translated had is the Greek word echo in an imperfect active indicative tense. Now the reason the grammar is important here is the imperfect tense in the Greek means that it is ongoing action in past time. So they just didn't have a testimony once, but it's because they continually had this testimony. It was an ongoing reality in, in their life. So because of their continuous and consistent testimony, they are uh, slaughtered by the forces of the Antichrist. And then we read in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, and they cried out with a loud voice. The Greek word here is krodzo, indicating they scream or shriek. It, it shows the drama and the intensification of their suffering as martyrs, although they're no longer suffering. Uh, the, the word is designed to emphasize that, that background. They cry out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It is this cry that is reminiscent of the cry of thousands upon thousands of believers down through the centuries, like the psalmist said, Oh, Lord, how long will the righteous suffer and the uh, wicked prosper? The question is, Lord, why, does, why do bad things happen to good people? And why do I do everything you tell me to do and I still go through all of this horrible suffering? Uh, aren't you paying attention? Aren't you listening to my prayers? Are you too busy with the war in Iraq or too busy with global considerations? Why in the world do I go through this suffering? 
And it is because God is going to judge evil completely and finally when the right time comes, and only in his omniscience does he know when that will be. And so just like the millions of believers who have preceded them who have asked the same kinds of question of God, how long will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood? These ask the same question. Now, the word avenging is an important word to pay attention to. There are too many people who misunderstand the whole concept of judgment and execution, especially in relation to capital punishment. They get the idea that that this is vengeance. It's not vengeance. Well, wait a minute. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So God is a God of vengeance. Well, vengeance has different nuances. There is a sense in which vengeance is nothing more than petty retribution from one person against another as they are seeking to get back at them for some real or perceived harm. That is not what the Greek or the Hebrew word indicates that is translated avenging or vengeance. The word translated avenging here is the Greek word ek. Those of you who studied with me long enough should hear something familiar in that verb, dikeo, from the noun dike meaning righteousness, dikaio, to be justified before God. This is not a word of personal vengeance. It's a word that uh, drips with judicial overtones. It is the result of the objective decisions of the Supreme Court of Heaven. And so what they are asking is, Lord, when are you going to finally bring justice against those who have unjustly persecuted those who have trusted in you? And the answer is given in verse 11, and there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while. They have gone through intense persecution. Now is the time to rest until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed. In other words, there is, there is going to be a certain time when it is the right time for God to act. And until that time is full, until it comes to completion, until uh, history has worked itself out, it is the wrong time for God to interfere and bring judgment upon the evildoers. And so they are to wait a little while longer until the right time comes. And then, and only then, will God enter into human history and, and judge evil and the evildoers. So this is the thrust of verse 11. We're told there was given to each of them white robe. They were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren were to be killed, even as they even as they had been, should be completed also. There is a number. When that last one that completes that number is martyred, then and only then will the Lord Jesus Christ return. Now, there's another phrase that's important to pay attention to in these verses, and that's at the end of verse 10. Those who dwell upon the earth. And so we should ask this question, who are those who dwell on the earth? This phrase is used uh, many times in the book of Revelation. It's used 11 times in nine different verses. For example, it's used in this verse that we've looked at already, the vengeance upon those who dwell on the earth. Is this simply those who live on the earth, 
or is it a technical term for something else? It's already been used once in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 3.10, there is the promise from God that I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That's the tribulation period. It's viewed as a time of testing. The Greek word there is perasmos, and testing in the Bible is a time to reveal the true character or nature of something. And in the testing of the tribulation period, God is going to reveal the true nature of those who have rejected him, that they are not moral, they are not good, they are not, they do not have uh, the best interests of mankind in their place. See, this is what you hear from politicians, this is what you will hear from many religious leaders who are teaching false doctrines, and that there are many ways to heaven, many ways to God, all in opposition to the message of the Bible that there is only one way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. Now, Jesus is either telling the truth or he's a liar. If he's a liar, he can't be the Son of God. He can't be the Savior of the world, and he can't be worthy of worship. So the only other alternative is is that he is telling the truth, and the only way anyone can ever get into heaven is by trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. But that truth, that exclusive truth, that means that the, all the good deeds and all the uh, personal value that people think their lives have just because of who and what they are, uh, that, that all of that is of no value and no concern to God, just rankles those who are committed to the, their own path of arrogance. And these are the earth dwellers. Uh, they're spoken of later on in, in Revelation. For example, in Revelation 8.13, that I looked and heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And so we see that there is judgment upon these who dwell upon the earth, and they are known as these are the ones who will worship the Antichrist. These are the ones who will uh, take his number. But... Nevertheless, God is still going to exercise his grace towards them. And we are told in uh, Revelation chapter 14, uh, verse 6, John said, I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. Same phrase. That God never is still going to proclaim the gospel to them again and again and again. That is the grace of God. The grace of God is one of the great themes in the uh, book of Revelation. And so we come to a conclusion that the earth dwellers is a technical term in the book of Revelation for those who have who who are set against God. None in that group will ever exercise positive volition or respond to the gospel. But that is but there is another group that are, as it were, I don't like the word neutral, but are not yet believers, but will be. For the earth dwellers are those who will uh, kill, uh, execute, murder the two witnesses who come during the tribulation period. And after the two witnesses are resurrected and ascend to heaven, there will be this great earthquake in Jerusalem. And 7,000 will be killed, but the rest in Jerusalem, 
the rest will give praise and glory to the God of the heavens. So that indicates that the rest of those in Jerusalem at that time, is, that is when those Jews become believers, and this is just prior to the time of the abomination of desolation, and then they will flee into the wilderness. So there are those that aren't classified as earth dwellers. Earth dwellers are those who who have taken God out of the picture. Their orientation is completely towards the earth. They're in contrast to believers who are viewed throughout the Scripture as simply temporary residents, sojourners, aliens uh, on the planet. Uh, we are the real uh, illegal aliens, you might say, although one day we will be the true owners and rulers on planet Earth. Now, to give you some idea of how this is fulfilled, I want you to just turn over one chapter. We'll, we'll see another view of these martyrs in Revelation chapter 7. We'll skip the part in chapter 7 that deals with the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and we'll just look at uh, briefly at verses 9 through 17. After these things, this is a heavenly scene. Remember in Revelation we go from an earthly scene to a heavenly scene to an earthly scene to a heavenly scene. So this is a heavenly scene. After these things, John says, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number. Now, think about that a minute. Over in Revelation chapter Oh, I forget where it is. Now, I think it's in Revelation chapter uh, 14 or 15. Uh, in chapter 14, you have the 144,000. And Revelation chapter, um, oh, Revelation chapter 9. And uh, you have the uh, uh, armies that's released from under the uh, Euphrates, 200 million horsemen. You can count that high, can't you? 200 million is a lot. But you can count that high. But John looks at the number of martyred tribulation believers, and he says, it's so great a multitude that no one can number them. That's how many are going to be saved during the tribulation period. That's why I say it is a time of unprecedented belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, that represents the church-age believers, and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. And then skip down to verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? This is the unnumbered, unnumberable multitude. And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple And he who sits on the throne, which is the Father, will dwell among them. That I don't have time to deal with that this morning. See, back in Revelation 1, for those of you who 
stuck with me through the 150 plus hours we've done in Revelation. I said the, the one who sits on the throne who is identified in Revelation 1 as the one who was and who is and who is to come, many people think that is to come means it must be the Lord Jesus Christ because he's coming in Revelation 19. But the point is the one who is to come isn't just the Son, it is the Father because Revelation 21 says the Father will dwell among men and that's exactly what we see here. The one who sits on the throne... Jesus doesn't get his throne till the end of the tribulation. The one who sits on the throne is coming to dwell among them. Not just the Son, but the Father will dwell among men in the millennial kingdom. And we're told of these martyrs, they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat, for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the grace of God, the same grace of God that has provided a perfect salvation for us today, that faith in Jesus Christ is the only basis of salvation, that only by believing in him and him alone, you're not trusting in anything else, only faith alone in Christ alone can you have salvation. Jesus is the only way. There is no other way. Scripture says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And in the tribulation period, those who believe that will be slaughtered by the millions so that even though John can count to 200 million, he can't count the number of martyred tribulation saints in verse 9. And so that tells us that God's grace will be magnificently displayed in the tribulation as millions upon millions will trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that you are not just sitting by somehow ignoring the plight of millions of people who are going through undeserved, unjustified suffering in their lives, who are the uh, objects of tremendous evil, but that you will one day bring all of this into account and there is a judgment coming at which time you will judge uh, all these things that have happened in history. Evil will be judged and evil will be sent to the lake of fire along with those who are promoters, the evildoers who have promoted this. That we have a message of hope and not just a message of judgment, and that hope is in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the eternal second person of the Trinity who died on the cross for our sins, and he paid the penalty in full so that we have salvation only by believing in him. For the scriptures make this very clear. It is not by works. It's not by uh, church attendance or affiliation. It's not based on how we feel. It's not based on inviting Jesus into our heart. The scriptures only say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is your opportunity to do so. The issue is clear. Jesus died for your sins. And the question before you is, what will you do about that? Are you going to trust in him or trust in yourself? If you trust in Jesus Christ, then you have eternal life. 
If not, then you remain condemned because you have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Father, we pray for those here who are believers that we will be challenged by what we have studied, be encouraged by the reminder of your expansive grace and how extensive it will be even during a time of judgment such as the tribulation. And may we realize that this, that you are today the gracious, loving God, that you are in the tribulation period, that you have been in the past, and that you have provided everything for us, and that we too look forward to a glorious future in your presence where every tear will be wiped away and eventually we will no longer remember the sorrows and the hardships of this life. And we pray this in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.